Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On Commons People this week, Tory wannabes tell us what they want from Brexit. Ultimately, there was a choice between no deal and no Brexit, and you could only choose one of those two. I would choose no deal. Donald Trump makes his considerable presence felt. Look, I think everything with the trade deal is on the table. And Theresa May tries to go green at the last. Um, uh, yes, Mr Speaker, the, my right friend, the Prime Minister, did raise climate change with uh, the President yesterday. Hello and welcome to Commons People. Joining me this week is Paul War. Hi, Arj. Hey, Paul. Rachel Wearmouth is also with us. Hello. Hi, Rachel. And we also have the Tory MP and Commons Foreign Affairs Committee Chair, Tom Tugendhat. Hi, Arj. Hi, Tom. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Good, good, good. So Tory leadership candidates have this week started to set out their pitches to MPs at the first hustings events of the contest. We've had Boris Johnson warning the party risks extinction... Dominic Raab stressing he is not a feminist, and Jeremy Hunt insisting he's not just Theresa in trousers. Let's hear one of the outsider candidates, potty mouth Matt Hancock, telling our very own Paul War why he thinks he's the best man for the job. I hope I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I'm decisive. I focus on what the country needs to be in the future. The other thing is, I think I've proved in half a dozen ministerial portfolios, latterly in health, that I can get shit done. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody who's got loads of energy and optimism and, uh, and, and can drive things through government. Um, Paul, I'm going to ask you this every week until it's done. Who's going to win? And should I refuse to answer every week? Um, no, well, put it this way, it looks like Boris is to lose, but looks like is, you know, a very heavy qualification. Because uh, we did a story earlier this week, uh, I'd managed to get sight of a top secret document, a spreadsheet, which has been drafted by Team Boris, of every single Tory MP's voting intention and notes alongside it. Now, I'm not going to say uh, who managed to pass this to me, but uh, I had a glimpse at this document and it looks like that they're on course for at least 80 MPs. Now, so far, I think there are 47 publicly declared. They're holding back people very deliberately, so they keep showing momentum. But that sort of private uh, assurance is more than 80. That gives you a, a very decent start. They reckon they can close in on the 105. I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but 105 is the third of the party you need to automatically get in that final two. Um, so they're confident, uh, that, but they're obviously trying to keep their candidate away from attention because they know he's got a history of, of cocking it up, let's be honest. And I personally think, yeah, he's the favourite, but the real opportunity, and we can talk to Tom about this, um, from people like Michael Gove and Jeremy Hunt and others, is that moment that might happen of a, a Boris implosion during this leadership race. And what will it be? 
will it be a tabloid story, a new one, a new scandal? Will it be him in a live TV debate saying something that actually really wraps him in knots? Will it just be his record, him being relentlessly pinned on it? It might, But there might be a moment where someone like Gove can actually then leapfrog, not into second, but into first. And I think that's why it's quite interesting, this race. And that's hopefully why the hustings and... Uh, in the commons will sort of weed this out because let's be honest in 2016 we didn't have any of this we had you know a, 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 a fake facsimile really of what was a leadership yeah. contest but we had that moment didn't we we had Ledson's that moment with Andrew Ledson where it, yep. where it blew up but Tom you're a supporter of Michael Gove that's um, right is this Boris's to lose look I mean I think Paul's assessment sounds entirely reasonable I mean the 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 real uh, the real thing that we've got to remember, and you know, we learned this lesson twice, once in 2016, but again, of course, in 2017, is that we need public debates. We need to make sure that whoever uh, wins the leadership of uh, the Conservative Party and therefore becomes Prime Minister is somebody who can not only craft an idea, but also sell it and persuade other people that it's a good idea. And if they can't do that, if they're not prepared to debate, if they're not prepared to stand there and make their case, then frankly, we've got to ask ourselves some pretty serious questions. Uh, Paul, you've got the kind of 1922 timetable of events. Are those public debates, or are we talking behind closed doors hustings like we've seen? The this 22 week? is formal hustings that we they were we were made quite clear today. A briefing by the co-chairman uh, is going to be behind closed doors. They're not going to break precedent, and I can't. I don't see why they should, to be honest. I mean, I can imagine, you know, we, we will battle hard to have uh, lobby hustings. Um, so let's see whether or not anyone's empty chaired in that, for example. Maybe if Boris refuses to turn up for that. But um, there'll be, you know, we've had the One Nation caucus hustings, which Rachel's been attending and you've been attending this week. So that gives us a bit of a glimpse. Journalists aren't allowed in there, but it's like being in there anyway, because everyone leaks what's said. So, but I think Tom's right. You know, debate will sort of flush out some of these issues. And, you know, Boris, let's be honest, you know, isn't fantastic at debate. He blusters a lot. He's, he's, ter- he's got this allergy to detail, not just in a debate, but also in his everyday politics. So when he was in the mayor of London, you know, detail wasn't his big thing. Others were delegated to actually run things at the Foreign Office, and we can talk to Tom about this in greater detail. You know, what policy achievements does Boris have to his name as Foreign Secretary? He had lots of gaffes, and Tom has Foreign Affairs Committee chairman made damn sure he was scrutinised uh, quite uh, rigorously over all those gaffes and other things. But there were some serious errors, you know, things like, you know, Nazanin is a classic example where he he dropped the ball. And a prime minister can't do that. What will be interesting, as I say, this implosion moment will be how many MPs, backbench MPs, are persuaded by people like Michael Gove and others that actually this is really serious. You might be scared about Nigel Farage, but you're electing prime minister, not leader of the opposition. Boris would be a brilliant leader of the opposition. Would he be a prime minister who can make decisions about hostage negotiations? Would he be a, a prime minister who can actually get his way in Brussels? Who knows? Yeah, and Rachel, you've been looking at some interesting analysis of polling, which isn't great for Boris either and might turn some MPs which, off. Which, which feeds in a, a, a lot to what Paul has just been saying. He, um, Lord Hayward was looking at um, Tory voters, essentially, and what's important to them. And he splits them into around, uh, like, three-thirds. Um, so it's sort of Remainers, Brexiteers, and a third in the middle who just want good government. Yeah, And that's, uh, that's really important to them. So they can, he's saying, basically, that obviously the, the candidates are not going to go for the remain the remain third but um they, they're going to look for the brexit third and for that for that middle um and of the 2017 voters 23 percent um thought um boris johnson would be a very bad prime minister um he's particularly not supported in sort of middle 
middle-class, well-educated areas of the country. So the, the traditional um, home county support that they have in Cheshire, um, that very support that makes the Tory vote so robust. Um, so his kind of claim to voters that, that he's the one to save the, the party, claim to MPs that he's the one to save the party isn't necessarily borne out by the polling that Hayward's looked at. And how did Tom's man, Michael Gove, do in that analysis? Uh, much better. <laughs> yeah. well, yeah. I'm glad to hear it. Jeremy Hunt similarly did much Look, there are some really strong candidates running. I mean, let's be frank. I mean, there are some exceptional people who are running and some, you know, some are much better communicators, some are much better uh, detail people. But, you know, you've got to find somebody who can go across the board. I mean, I remember when I was in my last job in the military, I was the uh, assistant, military assistant to the chief of the defense staff. And the number of times we'd go over to number 10 with a, a brief and it was an urgent decision as to whether or not to launch a helicopter with 12 men in it to go and rescue a hostage. Now, if you make the wrong call there, you may not just be leading to the death of a single hostage, you may be killing all those 12 men and the two pilots, because you're not over the detail. This is not a game. This is really not a game when you take over in number 10. And there is nobody, literally nobody, to second-guess you. The decision stops with you. So there isn't, a, there isn't an appeals process. There isn't a further decision. So that's why I'm going for somebody who I think is a leader. And, and who that's can actually why make you're those not decisions. going from Boris Johnson, who you have, let's be honest, let's be frank about this, Tom, you've, you've quitted him quite a lot in the select committee, and you were unsatisfied. You made it quite clear. But Paul, you know the job as a select committee chair is to hold the minister responsible to account. Uh, and I hope that's what we did as a committee, because you that did, is our but, job. But as an MP who's got a vote in this race, it's obvious what you've, from what you've said Actually, you wouldn't trust Boris Johnson in those situations. Paul, I'm choosing somebody who's ready to lead, and that's why I'm choosing Michael Gove. I wonder if the, if the, the blind spot for um, the Conservative Party is uh, the younger voters that they, they lost at the last election to, to Jeremy Corbyn. Um, Boris is, is much more popular among older voters, but, but not, not able to sell himself among those younger voters. Uh, Rory Stewart and Sajid Javid were much popular among that age group, according to Hayward's polling. So, so I thought that was Saj interesting is, point. Saj is a fantastic uh, guy, and he's, you know, he's got an amazing backstory, but he's also delivered in government, so he's got a fantastic combination. And he's got, you know, he, he's got a reach that many other conservatives don't have. That's absolutely true. And Rory, likewise, I mean, literally, his his life is a movie script. So it's <laughs> not even a, it's not even a metaphor. It actually is a movie script. He, Brad Pitt brought, Brad the, Pitt brought the, rights, the rights. Exactly. No, no, no. I mean, it really is. And you know, I've known him for the best part of twenty years, and he's an amazing communicator. And he really does go down into the detail, and he really understands issues quite literally from the ground up. You know, this is a guy who is a fantastic. Uh, individual. So, you know, I think those are two excellent candidates as well. And Matt, Matt Hancock, what he's done with technology in this country and his understanding of it has, is really already beginning to make some serious changes into the NHS. NHS X, I don't know if you've heard of it, but now run by a guy called Matthew Gould, brilliant, is, uh, is really uh, going to change the NHS and transform it into not just a fantastic uh, you know, support for everybody in this country, but actually a global leader in tech. I just want to quiz you a bit on Gove, since you are a leading supporter of him. What is the difference between his Brexit plan and Theresa May's? Well, I'm not his spokesman, I'm afraid. So, <laughs> uh, but you're supporting him. Yeah, I am supporting him. And uh, I think the fundamental problem with, uh, with many, uh, much of this is that, um, it, you know, is the lesson that Paul brought out on the, uh, on the um, hustings and on the, on the debates. If you're not willing to go out and sell your ideas, don't be surprised when people don't like them. 
Uh, and what I'm afraid we found over the last three years is we had a leader who wasn't willing to go and explain the policies to the country. Now, I spent a long time in uh, groups and uh, and meetings around uh, my community and you know you can encourage people to see what the differences are and how you and how you get there now you'll have to ask michael what is what his exact policy on this is because i haven't i haven't read the details and i haven't i haven't followed it but you know he is as clear as everybody else is that there really isn't a way back you know we are leaving the european union there's really no question about that and we've got to leave uh, you know at the end of october do you think that do you think MPs trust Michael Gove? I think that's that's an issue that comes yes. up time and time again. Yeah, I do, and I tell you why. I mean, look, there's a lot of the sort of you know Dallas slash dynasty type dynamics about um, this. Showing our age now, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Neighbours, does that help? Yeah, no, d- no. D- Dallas and this in my era. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These Davis, guys Davis I'm worried about. Well, who shot JR? I know. <laughs> yeah, there you go, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, no idea who I JR confess, is. But... I never watched a single episode, but there you go. But the. Um... <laughs> no, I have no idea who they are. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, you know, there's a slight soap opera element to it, and I, and I get that, and it's the sort of stuff that sells papers, and, you know, fine. But the truth is, you know, if you want to see who has transformed uh, education, who has transformed justice and who is now transforming uh, environment. I mean, you know, people do trust Michael to be the person who steps into a department and really delivers change. I mean, this is, you know, you may or may not like the outcome of uh, his policies. If you're a conservative, you probably do. If you're not a conservative, you probably don't. But the truth is, this is a guy who has really been completely transformative. And when you look at, for example, the Department for the Environment, where he is now, you know, I was at a political meeting the other day where uh, a former Secretary of State for the Environment was there. And some guy who follows politics very closely said, oh, I didn't even know we had a Department of the Environment before Michael got it. You know, it's really telling. This is a guy who really delivers change. It didn't go well with the former Secretary of State. I <laughs> but, the, uh, but this is a guy who really delivers change, and he's managed to do it in environment uh, quite extraordinarily, getting both uh, you know the green agenda and the environmentalists and the farmers and the landowners on site. Now that's you know, that's that's no small achievement. Um, just to come back to what you said about public debate, so all these 1922 private hustings, would you rather they were public? Look, I think there's a place for both. Right. Actually, I do think there's a place for private hustings because I think some of some of uh, some MPs don't want to ask questions publicly. And I personally, I think we should be public. But there you go. But you know, so I think there is a place for private hustings. But I don't think that that is a replacement to say, oh, well, we can only have a debate of the last two. No, I think once we're down to I don't know, whatever it is, the last, you know, four, five, six, something like that. I think we should have a public debate. I actually think that, you know, one of your colleagues, maybe even on this podcast, somebody should actually host. Hey, yes. There Excellent. you go. Here you go. First. The, uh, <laughs> somebody should actually host um, a debate because we need to see whether or not, you know, the candidates that I happen to think Michael Gove is a great candidate, okay? I think he's delivered in, uh, in, in debate, uh, sorry, in departments, and I think he's delivered in debate when he was leader of the Leave uh, campaign, when he was heading the Leave campaign. But you know what? Maybe I'm wrong. Now, I don't think I am, but I think we need to have that tested. And there's a lot of other candidates who are standing there who we think are amazing communicators because, you know, they have been communicators for, you know, their, their names are very known or whatever. And we just need to see whether they can explain an idea and actually sell it because that is politics. Um, Tom, your name was being bandied around as a potential leader Only a few months ago. But why, 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 <laughs> why didn't you run? Look, I think we need somebody who uh, voted uh, for Brexit and who can uh, really sell uh, this policy because this policy is going to require compromises, it's going to require uh, changes and we need somebody who can 
credibly say, this is absolutely the policy I intended. And, you know, Michael led the Leave campaign. I mean, he was uh, the principal spokesman. He was the one who went out and did the major interviews on details. He was the one uh, who uh, wrote a lot of the articles and, and was very, very visible in the debate. So I think, I think we need a, a leading voice for Brexit on this, I'm afraid. Just a final one on this, and I'll ask it to you, Paul. Aren't all the candidates who want to renegotiate the deal being fundamentally dishonest? And does it mean we're heading directly for a general election or second referendum? Well, I think that's what was really interesting about Michael Gove last night at the Hustings and today in the Daily Mail. He was brutally honest about this, that in the real world, there's no way you're going to get a renegotiation in time for October 31st. If you're serious about getting a deal with the EU, you're probably going to have some kind of extension. The question is how long. And I think he... He gets brownie points from the commentariat, from people like us, saying, yeah, good on you. You're actually telling the truth. Does that get him brownie points amongst fellow MPs? I don't know. It um, does. It does. Look, I mean, we've heard a lot of stories over the last few years and certainly some over the last few months. You know, the last person who prorogued Parliament was Charles I. That didn't end very well. So this idea that you're somehow going to prorogue Parliament and rule like a dictator to get one policy through and none of the others, come on, you're not going to do it. And we all know it doesn't work. This idea that you're going to renegotiate. There isn't a European Commission until the 1st of November. There just isn't one there. So, you know, I mean, you, you can negotiate if you like, but there literally isn't anybody on the other side of the table. So who are you negotiating with? Yeah. You know, it's just not true. Well, let's see whether or not your colleagues do buy that, though, and whether or not Boris has got a decent answer. But He's going to go and see Barnier on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> what, on a landing yeah. craft? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's not stretch that one out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, this week we've also been treated to the dubious honour of a visit from Donald Trump. Uh, the US president got his photos with the Queen, albeit in an incredibly ill-fitting suit, and he slagged off Sadiq Khan and Jeremy Corbyn. But more interesting to us, of course, were his meetings with Tory leadership candidates, also Nigel Farage, and bizarrely the backbench MPs Ian Duncan-Smith and Owen Pattinson. Let's hear the Donald discussing the Tory leadership race during a typically outspoken press conference. So I know Boris... Uh, I like him. I've liked him for a long time. He's, uh, I think he'd do a very good job. I know Jeremy. I think he'd do a very good job. I don't know Michael, but uh, would he do a good job, Jeremy? Tell me. Um, Paul, Michael Gove had a bit of a nightmare with this Trump visit, didn't he, in terms of the Tory leadership race? Yeah, I mean, as you heard from that clip, you know, he, the, the president saying, suggesting he didn't know who Michael Gove was. I don't I think he meant I didn't know him, know of him. I think he meant I didn't know him what he's really like. I mean, that, that's clear, I think, if you're being fair. Um, but it was a bit of an error for the Gove camp to, to brief that they were going to have a meeting and then the meeting didn't happen. Um, and I think one of the reasons that meeting didn't happen is because, from what I understand, that the, the Americans are, are increasingly upset with this idea of um, being accused of sabre-rattling over Iran by, by Michael. Now, that was a feature in the Sun interview, which happened before the president's uh, arrival. And it, what's strange about all that is that Michael Gove is the one person you think of as a real foreign policy hawk. And yet here he is, again maybe just being realistic as he is on Brexit and saying, actually, first, it's a British foreign policy priority to make sure that this Iran nuclear deal survives. And you might say it's a more patriotic thing to do, actually, and to tell Trump in no uncertain terms, actually, this is the only way this is going to work. There is no plan B. Interestingly, that's exactly what Boris Johnson said when he was foreign secretary in America. There is no plan B. Um, I think Boris might have forgotten a bit of that bit of the equation. But anyway, what I find interesting is that, that Michael is being punished almost for, for being a compromiser. 
by the president and for sticking up for British interests. Now, that might play well amongst the Tory membership, to be honest. Mm. What's wrong with having a, a, a Tory prime minister who actually does stand up for British interests? It certainly win you across the board votes, but and it might well win you the patriotic vote um, as opposed to just going along with what Trump wants. Yeah, there's been kind of this thing of... If, you, if you're a serious leadership candidate, you need to have a meeting with Trump while he's over. Do you think, Tom, that that's that reflects kind of the Tory electorate or selectorate? No, I don't, I don't think yeah. I don't think it does actually. I mean, look, the president of the United States is welcome here whenever he wants to come. I mean, I think I think most conservatives would agree with that. But the idea that you know ministers who don't have a particular role in the visit should somehow be throwing themselves at his door i don't i don't think it's sensible you know we didn't we didn't leave the european union in order to go cravenly to another grouping i mean that's certainly not true we we are very very good and close partners of the united states because we share interests and we share values and we share 70 years or 75 years really today it's worth remembering uh, of having uh, fought side by side and and helped preserve uh, a peace in uh, in the world or as much of a peace in the world as has existed um, that has required huge amounts of effort uh, to achieve. So this isn't about you know whether or not somebody's on a particular dinner roster or not. Yeah, and Tom, the, kind of the fundamental question this week has been, do we need to be nice to Trump because he's the US president or should we actually be more forceful in calling him out precisely because he is an ally? And what, what do you make of that? That's I think we should always be polite to the President of the United States. The democratically elected leaders of our allies and friends should be welcome uh, in, our, in our country. I think that's a pretty simple, um, pretty simple view. I don't think there's much complicated about that. I mean, it, what we say in private, and by the way, we have some pretty frank conversations with most of our allies about several different issues in private. You know, with uh, Germany, we have frank conversations about one thing, France another, America a different one. You know, this isn't surprising. This is the nature of uh, international diplomacy, that sometimes you, you know, you have to disagree with your friends. And, uh, and we do do that. Um, but that doesn't mean that we should be being rude to somebody who was elected uh, by millions of Americans. You know, we are quite understandably sometimes have to be very polite to people who don't share the same values and aren't democratically elected and have records of human rights violations that, frankly, are pretty poor. Yeah, uh, Rachel, one thing Trump said in his press conference with Theresa May was that the NHS would be on the table in future trade talks. Um, how worried are voters by this sort of thing? Um, I don't. I don't think they're as plugged into it as you, you would think they are. I didn't. It certainly didn't make the front page of every newspaper the next day. Um, I wonder if Trump quickly realised his mistake because the the interview he gave straight afterwards to Good Morning Britain, um, he backtracked on it and um, said he said it's not necessarily on the table. Do you he think wouldn't... it's a misunderstanding? Because in American English, to table a motion means to drop it, whereas in English. English to table a motion means to present it. That's very <laughs> generous of you, Tom. <laughs> very well, when I used to work for Bloomberg, yeah. we weren't allowed to use the expression ah. to table something uh. because it meant a different thing in the US and different thing I in the UK. I suspect in Trump he just didn't know what the NHS was. It was obvious. Well, <laughs> <laughs> he, had to, he had to be prompted by the Prime Minister. NH what? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, Again, I think that I think I wonder if that's generous. I think sometimes he says one thing and then says and then says another to avoid answering the question altogether. But the impact on the voters is a good question because actually, I talked to people in the Labour Party who are obviously terrified of losing Peterborough by-election. They said to me the feedback they're getting from Labour voters on the doorstep. They thought they would have a last-minute 
burst of anti-Trumpism, Trump equals NHS privatisation equals Brexit party, and none of that has, has landed anywhere. And in fact, the messages are getting back, and Rachel did a big piece from Peterborough this week, making clear that they're, they're on a roll, precisely because... A lot of those Labour voters are just saying, we know no deal's bad, but we, we, don't, we want it nevertheless. We just want out. That's really difficult, really difficult for both, both main parties. Um, but, you know, we can talk about Jeremy Corbyn maybe. At another well, point. yes, I was going to ask you about that. Do you think he was wrong to, well, what do you think? Let's ask Tom because he's a politician. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn was wrong to give a speech at the anti-Trump rally? He's not wrong. He can do what he likes, which is a bit childish. I mean, look, frankly, this is a guy who sat down with Hamas, with the IRA. He sat down with uh, Stasi agents when he was in uh, East Germany, even if he claims not to have done. He sat down certainly with a Czech spy and he was perfectly happy to stick on white tie to go and uh, have dinner with a guy who's uh, incarcerated over a million Muslims in northwest China. So, you know, frankly, his uh, decision on whether or not somebody's uh, suitable is nothing to do with human rights. It's to do with uh, whether or not he thinks that they're anti-American, anti-imperialist and anti-Semitic enough. I think the bigger the bigger problem here of Trump is actually that, it, and, and it depends whether or not a new prime minister will do this, is to call him out on his ways ruin the West's you know, long-standing rules-based order. You know, Trump is a protectionist. Trump is effectively trying to tear up the trade rules. He's, he's tearing up the diplomatic rules in many ways, um, the, whether it's climate change agreement, which was, you know, years of work went into that and tearing all that up simply to get some voter base. It just seems extraordinary. Um, but there's lots of other areas where he's not playing the rules. And the interesting thing about Corbyn is, and no one's pointing this out, Corbyn wants to tear up those rules as well. So Corbyn's the guy who hates NATO as much as Trump. Corbyn's the guy who actually doesn't like the WTO as much as Trump. And so what's interesting here is that you, there is a gap in that for someone in Britain to say, actually, no, we do stand up for that. This is what we spent years trying to develop across the world, these global interconnectedness. And yeah, as Tom says, there are bumps in the road with various regimes you don't like, but at least binding them into the new rules is what it's all about. And what's surprising, the Prime Minister didn't, didn't make a strong defence of that this week. She should have. That would have been a great it's legacy also moment. nods and winks and presents from the... But you, you know. if you're a Conservative, you can make that case. You can and say, Corbyn's doing this, Trump's doing this, we shouldn't be doing it. Well, look, I agree. And this is exactly the, the... I mean, I know you follow everything that I do very closely, Paul, but you may have just missed one or two articles I've oh, written on I? exactly I'm this. I'm sorry, Tom. Yeah, no, sorry. But, you know, <laughs> they were probably behind a paywall in the Yeah, time. exactly. That's right. Make any excuse. The, uh, but look, I have made this case because actually this is exactly the reason that I wanted to chair the Foreign Affairs Committee and I wanted to have a voice on British foreign policy because the fundamental truth about British foreign policy is not that we stood alone against everybody. It's that we have always been at the heart of a network. We have always been the natural ally, the natural interconnector for everybody. Now, whether that's about, you know, selling insurance policies on the London Exchange or whether that's about military engagement where, you know, dealing with the Americans is quite hard because they're so big. So if you're Danish or Estonian, it's much easier to plug into the UK and then work with the Americans. There's a whole series of interconnections that Britain has been absolutely at the heart of. Commonwealth, the United Nations, NATO. I mean, I can go on and on and on. And the role of the UK, as you rightly say, has always been to write those rules. Now, in some of them, it's pretty obvious. The European Convention on Human Rights, for example, was written by British lawyers. It was written by British lawyers who had fought, some of whom landed on Normandy 75 years ago today. And they had seen the horrors of totalitarianism and the horrors of Belsen and Auschwitz. And they wrote the rules to stop that kind of totalitarianism taking place again. 
But that's the obvious one. Actually, there's a lot of soft power. We wrote the rules on accountancy. We wrote the rules on property. And today, if you want to see how people opt into those rules, don't just look at Hong Kong, which obviously uses uh, laws that are based on the laws of England and Wales, nor even uh, the Commonwealth states like Australia and, of course, New Zealand and Canada, who obviously have their legal system coming from ours. Look at countries like uh, the United Arab Emirates, who've got a free port where they have established English commercial law as the jurisdiction because they know people trust it. Look at, rather bizarrely, the free port in Astana, three or 4,000 miles from the sea, perhaps. But, you know, but it's still a free port, apparently, uh, <laughs> where the Kazakhs have again chosen English commercial jurisdiction. They've done it because they know that English rules, and in this case, it, I, English does mean English. It's not just British. Uh, the, the laws of England and Wales in commercial jurisdiction are very, very uh, internationally well regarded. And so there are retired British High Court judges who fly out to Astana every now and again <laughs> to sit in justice over commercial disputes in Kazakhstan. This is, you know, this is people genuinely buying into a British network, genuinely buying in uh, to what the UK is. And that's why I agree with you totally. Defending the rules, defending the rule of law, defending the international system is actually fundamentally defending Britain's interests at the heart of a network and making sure that the peace that we have established over the last 70 years under the rule of law isn't replaced by the rule of force, which, of course, is the only alternative to the rule of law. Uh, let's move on. Uh, Theresa May officially stands down as Tory leader on Friday, and she is now busy trying to secure her legacy. With her Brexit deal dead, she wants to legislate as soon as possible for net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, but is running into opposition from Chancellor Philip Hammond, who has warned it will cost a trillion pounds. Climate change also came up at PMQs this week. Let's hear Labour's Rebecca Long-Bailey asking whether May pressed Trump on the issue. She was more forceful in raising climate change. With a president who initiated the US withdrawal from the Paris Climate Agreement, opened up record amounts of land for oil and gas drilling and called climate change a hoax. Can the right honourable gentleman confirm if yesterday the Prime Minister made any attempt to convince him that climate change is in fact real? Paul, this is an interesting cabinet row in the dying days of the May government, isn't it? Well, the weird thing about cabinet rows now is that they really don't matter, do they? I mean, in many ways, because all the authority is drained from prime minister. We go to lobby briefings now, and I am not kidding. We barely take notes because we used to hang on every single nuance, every syllable, every word, as you both know, at a lobby briefing. Now we don't because what the prime minister says really doesn't matter. Um, No one's expecting her to actually implement anything before she goes this is one is this is interesting precisely because philip hammond's obviously or someone around him has decided to leak this letter and to send across a shot across the pm's bows on it and saying just in case you were thinking of passing this legislation before you go hold on a tick there's 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 could be a big row about it with a tiny majority if even a handful of Tory mps don't like the look of this it's not going to happen but the other interesting thing that we were told by number 10 was this will be secondary legislation not primary legislation um and then it could be interesting about how that vote happens. And But still, you've got to say, if there's a substantial chunk of Tories, uh, if they force a vote in the full house of, of the full floor of the Commons, then it's not going to happen. But I do think, I personally think that this is such a massive, important 
area of public policy that um, it, we should be grateful to ever leak that letter because, you know, having some kind of plan like that one, no matter how much it costs, is going to be on the table of every single world leader. They're going to have to come up with something to deal with climate change. And I wrote this morning that everyone over here has forgotten, because Trump was here this week, that Biden announced this week a massive plan for climate change emergency. And it involves lots of things about, you know, the way it, it investment, a trillion dollars, it was a bit better than a trillion pounds, uh, lots of investment, more importantly, changing the way things work in the US. And crucially, crucially, from the Trump playbook, using international trade, the might of America overseas in terms of its procurement and its trade and tariffs to actually possibly do it for good. Whereas with, with Trump, it's very narrow. We have tariffs on this because we don't like you or because, you know, um, we, it's natural self-interest. This is actually a bigger thing. We'll impose tariffs on you if you have carbon-rich goods that we don't want to trade with or you're not meeting your own obligations under the climate change agreement. Then that's quite interesting from Biden. It's got no play here yet, but I, I think both parties are going to have to look at that kind of issue. You know, can you use that muscle globally? Can Britain use whatever muscle it's got to force other carbon uh, restrictions? And that's interesting. Um, Rachel, is this a live issue in the Tory leadership contest? You've been asking about this it, after it's, the it, it's it's somewhat secondary. I mean, um, when I asked us for the, after the Hustings um, on on Monday night, I know that Rory Stewart raised it. Um, we know um, also that Sajid Javid raised it. Um, Michael Gove raised it the, the following night. Yeah, um, it doesn't seem like Boris brought it up um we know that andrea ledson is going to come out today and say that were she elected pm that she would declare a climate emergency um but i think this are probably the tory membership are less less switched on to this interview and Bre- brexit know, agree. really yeah no i don't agree at all actually i think the tory membership are very interested in this the number of letters i get about the green belt or about green issues i think this is a hugely important issue to the conservative membership actually and i think it's a hugely important issue to to people in the united kingdom because you just have to look around the country to see uh, the threats of you know industrial ex- expansion into areas that we've traditionally thought of as you know rural agricultural countryside or whatever and we're seeing it all over the place and in a community like the one i'm privileged enough to represent in west kent you know, we see it with housing projects, we see it with uh, road projects, we see it in a whole bunch of ways. And people really want to know that the environment is protected, not just in a sort of, you know, ethereal sense, or, you know, but in a particularly practical sense. So actually, I think, I think this is a really big issue. And I think this is one of those issues, actually, where Britain really could be a world leader. You look at the fact that we've had now, what, two, three weeks without coal production, uh, sorry, without coal uh, in electricity production, that's putting us really ahead of the industrialized world. And you look at how we've done it, it's with things like offshore wind turbines with a bit of uh, solar energy, not as much as I think any of us would like, um, and with other innovations. And when you see that we're adding to those things, you know, things like tidal don't exist yet, but or not in serious numbers, but, you know, that's coming along, waves are coming along. You know, there's a whole series of areas where we really could make a difference. I think this is an area where the UK could not only be a world leader, but could actually make an income out of it too. What do you make of Philip Hammond's warning that it's going to cost loads of money? Uh, I'll leave uh, Philip Hammond to speak for himself, but uh, I think this is not uh, simply a straight financial choice in the sense of uh, up here and down there. I think this is the kind of investment that is not only transformative for the environment and, of course, for the country and our people, but is actually totally transformative for the economy. And I think this is exactly the sort of area where we should be really thinking hard about it. Look, Look at China today, okay? Now, many of us have got different issues with China. I cited a couple of them earlier. One of the things that China is doing is it is absolutely front and center 
of quite a lot of these environmental innovations. Now, I know they're still building coal-fired power stations, but they really are pushing environmental uh, energy production forward. Why is it? Well, a third of rice is grown in land that is only about a metre above sea level. Uh, Well over a third of their population is within 100 miles of the sea and less than uh, less than 100 metres above it. So, you know, the, the dependence that China has on not having global warming, on not having rising sea levels, is enormous. So actually, there's a real opportunity for us to use environmental policy, not just as an economic boost, which I've already spoken about, but actually also as a diplomatic one. We could really be world leaders here and be again at the heart of a network of real change in the world. So you, do you think Michael Gove's biggest selling point as a leadership candidate is his green credential. Well, he's got many, he's got many. But look, the fact that he's a guy who's who's come in from the right of the party, let's be quite clear, I mean, don't think that's a surprise, but he's come in from the right of the party and he's understood uh, the environmental challenges and how to address them in such a way that he's both got, you know, the, the landlords and the farmers and he's also got uh, the environmental movement on side. It tells you that this is a guy who can solve problems and that's really what we need now. We need somebody who can fix the problems that are facing us and can make the change. We need somebody who's ready to lead. And yet he was resistant to calling a climate emergency. That wasn't that wasn't for him. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not going to argue about what he chooses as a branding issue, but uh, I think it is. I think it's a climate emergency. Um, you'll have to ask him again. Maybe he's changed his mind. I think the, ultimately the big problem for Michael is the problem that every politician faces, which is you've got to have both the policy, you know, chops, but also you've got to be able to persuade people and... His big downside, even amongst his supporters, readily admit that, yeah, he's not that popular with the general public. Um, And and, and teachers, parents, all right, there's various lobby groups you're bound to upset when you're making change. I get that. But, you know, Michael himself, I was one of the very few people in that room when Michael launched his last leadership bid. And he said, if you want charisma, you're not going to get it here. Now, he's made a virtue of that and trying to make a virtue of that right now, saying that, look, Margaret Thatcher was unpopular, et cetera, et cetera, and she went on to win three elections. But I still think that might be a big problem for you. Yeah, I think we just want a leader. And, you know, you're right that some of the ways he handled the teachers when he was in education could have been more diplomatic. I think that's a polite way of putting it. I think he could have have looked at things a little bit differently. First of all, he's learned and he's handled the environmental issues very differently, as I'm sure you'd recognize, Paul. But secondly, you know what? The proof is, 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 in the, is, is in the result. And we have got so many more kids in good and outstanding schools today than we did only four or five years ago. You know, this is a huge change. Now, that's been delivered by teachers. It hasn't been delivered by Michael Gove. It hasn't, you know, it's been delivered by schools, teachers, parents and pupils around this country who've made fantastic strides forward. But the structure that enabled them to do it was because Michael was willing to take tough decisions and to make real changes. Now, they weren't always popular at the time. That's true. But they have delivered results, and they have delivered many, many more good and outstanding schools in this country. I'm not sure he'll pass the goggle box test. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> People see him on TV and they go, mm, looks a bit weird. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Paul, but there you go. people looked into this room. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm not running for office, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> the judiciary love him after a few years of grailing. I you know, you're right, you're right. Okay. Right, there's just about time for a quiz. Uh, yep. And since it's Theresa May's last official week as Tory leader, today's quiz is all about Theresa May. So just just come in whenever you want. Um, t- Tom's sort of laughing. So at this and, point, Tom says, yeah, I did vote of, against the vote of no confidence. Kind of, <laughs> uh, <are you? laughs> no, anyway, go on. Ask us some questions. <laughs> just come in when you want. Um, 
What herbal stimulant did Theresa May ban in 2013 against the advice of experts? Spice, was it? God, I've got no idea. It's not spice. Stimulant, herbal stimulant. Crikey. No idea. Oh, um, no. Echinacea. No, that's not, that's not banned, is it? <laughs> Go on. It's was... cat. Cat? Yes. It's a K-H-A-T. Yes. Cut. Which is chewed by... Cut. In Yemen, yes. I yeah, chewed right it when people, I was yeah. studying Arabic. Yeah. 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 A couple of Americans I knew made a cut milkshake, kept them awake for days. Oh, my God. <laughs> right, okay. Very unwise. <laughs> <laughs> is it mild? This is how yeah, it was very, described. Very okay. It's, it's a very, very mild stimulant. That, that's Tom's a drugs drug. confession. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Future leadership bit. Yeah. <laughs> Sitting in a majlis in, in, in Sanaa, chewing cut with, with a bunch that's, of Yemeni that's tribes. very yeah. Rory Stewart-esque. That's yeah. on, a, on a par with the opium confession. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a classy drug here. Do you regret it? Like Rory Stewart regrets his... No, I don't regret it. I chewed it for several months while I was in studying Arabic in Yemen, and that's what you... You know, there's no booze, so <laughs> you sit round drinking Pepsi and chewing cards, smoking cigarettes. Very nice. Uh, question number two. What did Theresa May study at Oxford University, and what grade did she get? Geography, for sure. What grade? I think she got 2-1. Oh, well, I know it's geography because I overheard you talking about it just before <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> I know it's geography because everyone says it rather unfairly. Oh, it's so easy to get in on geography. But it, there you go. It is geography, but what, what grade did she get? I think 2-1. I think she got 2-1. I'm guessing. Tom, you're going to have a stab? I have no idea. <laughs> it was a Desmond. A two, two, oh, really? 2-2. Two, two. Two, two. Okay, yeah. fine. And how many cookbooks does Theresa May own? 150, I think. Yeah, so, that's right. Is that right? Yeah, more wow. than, well, more than Have you been stalking her? No, 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 no. <laughs> I've just followed the woman <laughs> too long. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she said uh, last year she enjoys cooking because you get to eat it as well as make it. It's fair enough. So there you go. Um, well, that's about all we've got time for. Let's uh, listen to one of the weirdest moments of the Tory leadership race so far, courtesy of Rory Stewart, who once went to what sounds like a wild wedding in Iran. Fifteen years ago in Iran, I was at a wedding where somebody passed around an opium pipe and I smoked some of that opium pipe. So uh, actually, to be honest, reflecting on it, that was a bad thing to do. Uh, in fact, I went on to find in Iran the damage that opium does to people's lives. You can see whole villages devastated by it. It was a stupid thing to do. It was a wrong thing to do. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 